Let's just pray. Father God, I thank you for John. I thank you for his time before you in reading your word. Father, I thank you for what you have given him for us this day. And Lord Jesus, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our ears, our hearts, our minds to what you have for us to receive. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joe. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Um, I'm a bit shell-shocked I've just had my first week back at school, um, and it's kind of back to reality, <laughs> um, but it's just such a privilege to be here and to, to open this just incredible passage of Scripture uh, with you this morning. Um, I, when Tim first asked me to do this preach on this particular passage of Scripture, I was overjoyed because it's such a wonderful um, passage, and I just thought, brilliant, there's so much to say. And in a way, that's kind of started to weigh on me a little bit because there's so much to say and so much that could be said and so many ways that we can read this piece of scripture. And so um, I'm just going to pick out really just a few of the ways uh, this morning and I hope some of those ways will be helpful. Um, and I'm sure that um, it, it's quite funny this morning, a few people I've spoken to have said, oh, brilliant, you know, the Emmaus Road. And, you know, it's kind of an iconic piece of scripture. And suddenly you feel this huge weight of responsibility. But I'm going to do my best uh, to open this fantastic moment in, in Luke's gospel. Um, I used to work in quite tough schools. For those of you who don't know me, I, I currently work at Kingswood School, which isn't really a tough school, I'll be honest. Uh, it's a lovely school. It has its challenges like any school, like any community, but it's not what I would call a tough school. I used to work in really tough schools, uh, the toughest of which was in inner city Sunderland, uh, which was a, a secondary school that was um, on the, the poorest estate um, in the whole of the greater Sunderland area. So it was almost 100% unemployment in that, school, in that community. Um, a lot of problems in the community, um, lots of, therefore, um, really quite difficult children. Um, and, you know, I loved them, but they were hard. Um, and as you can probably imagine, we had quite a lot of behavior management training. When you work in a tough school, if you can't manage a group full of children, you can't teach anything. So behavior management has to come first. So we had lots and lots of that kind of training. And there was one particular training where we had a behavior expert come in, um, and he was just brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant, this guy, and he, he spoke to us uh, about all the different things that you could do. And one of the things that he said has definitely stayed with me, which I'm going to pass on now as a freebie um, to any of you who ever have the good fortune of working with young people or you have your own young people. Um, and it's to do with the difference between boys and girls and the way that boys and girls communicate and the way that you can help boys and girls to communicate because you probably noticed this, haven't you? We are fundamentally different, uh, uh, the two genders, in how we communicate. And this, I think, is probably true for adults as well, but it's certainly true for teenagers. Girls, and I think by extension, um, women, I think, being incredibly careful, and I'm looking at my friend Sarah, who's a champion of uh, girls in school, so you'll have to tell me off if I get this wrong later. But when they communicate, they want to talk like this. They want to sit and they want to make eye contact and they want to sit face to face and they want to have a conversation. Yes? Am I, am I on safe ground at the moment? <sighs> Taking a risk here. Boys don't like talking like that as a general rule. Boys like to talk like this. 
And actually, what this behavior management expert said to us is, if you've got a boy, a teenage boy, who's, who isn't being communicative, who's angry or can't express themselves, he said, one of the things you can do is just take them for a walk. Take them for a walk. And you will find, actually, that if you take them for a walk, they will find it more comfortable to talk to you. The worst thing you can do with a teenage boy who's, who's grumpy about something is to sit down and look at them and say, let's talk about this. It's absolutely the worst thing you can do. They will just close down even more. And it's probably true for many men as well. The worst thing to do right now is to sit down and, come on, open up to me here. The best thing to do is to do something together, an activity that becomes the focus for attention, and then the conversation can have on the side. Uh, quite a few people are nodding at me, which is quite encouraging, because perhaps they've got teenage children, or they've had teenage children who are boys, and they recognize what I'm talking about. The best conversations I ever had with my father, who, who I've, I've got a brilliant relationship with my dad. Um, he's a communicator. Uh, he was a preacher uh, in the Welsh Baptist tradition. A wonderful man, full of um, wonderful words and truth and wisdom. The best conversations we had was when he used to drive me to university. It was about a four and a half hour drive, and we would just talk. And because we were on a journey together, sat side by side, and we were doing something, and we were looking ahead, we were able just to have this conversation. And they were just incredibly important times in our lives, I think, for both of us. And I think he probably still misses that a little bit, because he used to absolutely love taking me to university. And it was, it was a long day, you know, he had to do the return trip, but it was so worth it, I think, I think, because we would just talk. We would just talk. And now, actually, um, we were just on, um, on holiday uh, with the whole family, and my dad was there. And probably one of the most um, important moments of that holiday is we went shopping to the local supermarket, and we did an activity together. And the conversation that happens, you know, just in the supermarket, that's just something about boys, I think. Okay, it's an aside. I hope you know where I'm going here. On the road to Emmaus, I think it's significant that these people are on a journey. It's significant metaphorically, but I think it's also significant literally. And what we see here is Jesus, God the Father, doing that thing that you do if you really want to open up with somebody, particularly with boys, where he walks alongside them and he says, what are you talking about? Let's have a conversation. Let's chat about what's on your hearts. And I love that about this moment. And I just... Can we just kind of pause and acknowledge something about this moment? That, you know, this amazing event in history has happened, okay? Jesus has risen, okay? Jesus has risen. This is day one of the new kingdom. Day one, okay? And you can imagine, can't you, that the risen Jesus probably has quite a few to-dos on his list of things that he now needs to do before he's going to ascend. Lots to do. There's a church to establish, there is a group of disciples to build together and uphold. He needs to restore Peter. There are all sorts of things to do. And there are all sorts, I'm sure, of cosmic things going on as well that we don't see or understand. There is a lot to do. And don't you just think it's remarkable that Jesus actually spends an afternoon with these two people? Have you thought about that? I mean, it's only two you know, this is the birth of a church that's going to span millions and billions over the years and is the new kingdom of God. Why on earth does the risen Christ spend an afternoon walking along the road with two people? That, to me, if we're going to think about opportunity cost, doesn't seem like the best usage of the risen Christ. 
Do you see what I'm talking about? I'm not trying to be disrespectful. All the things he could do, all the things he could do, yes, to establish himself, to build up his church, to build the faith of his followers. He knows, of course he knows, that there's a crowd of people in a room somewhere who don't know what to do. And surely you would think, oh, I've got a choice here. There are two here that have split off and they're walking somewhere. And then there's the bulk of my new church over here who need to be ministered to. What do I do? I find it fascinating that the risen Christ chooses to join them on the road. Don't you? Just let's just reflect on that for a moment. And what do, what do we think that tells us about the risen Christ? Well, there's a parable that Jesus tells earlier known as the parable of the lost sheep. I don't know if you remember that parable. You can look at it later if you want. The best place probably to find it, it is in Luke as well, but it's in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And what he says about God is he says that God's like a shepherd and I'm like a shepherd. And actually, even if I had a hundred sheep, if one of them gets lost, and is separated from the rest, I will go and find that one and bring them back. Do you remember that, that parable? It's a wonderful parable. It says, will he not leave the 99 and go and look for the one that wandered off? He said, that's what God is like. God is like that, like that shepherd who will go and find the one who's wandered off and bring them back into the fold. He's not just interested in, in the critical mass. He's interested in the individual. He's interested in you and me, friends, this morning as individuals, not just part of a global church. And I just think that the first act of the risen Christ to go and find the two who have split off from the rest tells me that the risen Christ is operating the way that God operates and the way that God has operated throughout the history of the world, which is to take care of the one as well as the many, to bring in the outsider. Yes? It's a nice thought. And this is typically Luke, isn't it? When you read the Gospel of Luke, he's really good at focusing on the minor characters. Have you noticed that? He likes to focus on the minor characters, the B characters, the ones that are kind of asides almost in the, in the larger story. Because Luke is very much interested in the Gentile story. And can I suggest to you, those of you that are kind of following what I'm saying here, that this image in itself is an image of the Gentiles being brought into the wider kingdom of God. Those who are outside, who have left Jerusalem, let's bring them in. And I just think that's an interesting image in itself, and that's clearly a concern of Luke's. Jesus makes time for the two. He doesn't just go and find them and say, ta-da! He walks with them. Spends time with them, opens the scriptures with them, he eats with them. The care and individual attention of the risen Christ, who has just conquered death and raised himself again, to then go and find these two and spend an afternoon with them, I just think is remarkable, don't you? Just think that's remarkable. Let's just acknowledge that, that's just fantastic. And he's like that with us as well, isn't he? <laughs> Praise God. He doesn't just go, do you know what? I've got plenty of followers. You're straying a little bit. I'm just going to let you go because, to be honest, I'm just really busy over here with everything else. No. I will go and find that lost sheep and bring them back. That's what I'll do. And that's what Jesus does as his first resurrected act to say this is the way that things are going to be now. We yes, it's a new kingdom. Death has been defeated. But the question now for us and for Luke is what's this going to look like now? How is Jesus going to operate in this world? What's my relationship going to be like with the risen Christ? How is it going to be different?
And I think this passage of scripture tells us a little bit about how Jesus is going to seek to operate and operates now in our lives. So that's the first thing we're going to think about. What does this story tell us about the way that the risen Christ is going to operate in our lives? And I've got a few thoughts for you. So you can follow with me if you like. I'm just going to kind of verse check a few things here. I've I've got five observations, which I hope are helpful. Number one, something I've already alluded to, is that Jesus, it says in verse 15, takes the time to walk their journey with them. He walks with them. He takes that kind of time. He wants to share our journeys. And that's something I think that we can expand out to us straight away, isn't it? That the risen Christ in our lives is walking with us. Is walking with us. There's that famous poem, isn't there, about kind of footprints in the sand and about those times when Jesus carried me, when times were difficult, and walks with us. And, and often we focus, I think, on, um, quite rightly in that poem, on the moments when we're lifted, and that's such a lovely image. But also just the fact that Jesus walks with us all the way. Can I get you to notice that he's walking with them even though they're going in the wrong direction? Have you noticed that? Where are you going, guys? Like, this stuff's just about to kick off. They're like football fans who have left in the 85th minute because they want to beat the traffic, even though it's 2-2 and anything could happen, and it's the last day of the season, and you know what? Is it going to be Man City or is it going to be Liverpool? Do you know what? I'll just find out the result later. I'm going to beat the traffic. It boggles the mind. Why are they leaving? Why are they leaving the place where it's all kicking off? Where, everybody else, where are they going? What could possibly be more important right now? Okay, all those questions would be in my mind, but Jesus walks with them in the wrong direction for a whole afternoon. It's encouraging, isn't it? Because <laughs> I'm sure, like me, there are times when you will spend a whole afternoon walking in the wrong direction, but guess what? Christ will walk with you even though he's thinking every step of the way, where are we going? Why are you going this way? What are you doing? It's very clear you should be back there. I've made it abundantly clear to you, Christian, that you should be back over there. But I'm going to walk with you. I'm not going to let you stray. I'm going to walk with you every step in the wrong direction because there will be a moment when I can reveal it to you in a way that you can understand. Ah, the grace, the compassion of the risen Lord, the relationship The patience, how wonderful. And then, thankfully, verse 27, Jesus will reveal himself to us along the way. And I want you to notice the way that he reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to these disciples through his scriptures. He opens them up and he teaches. And obviously, this is pre-Pentecost, but something that through the Holy Spirit still happens, which is that Christ reveals himself through his scriptures. And by his scriptures, I don't just mean the Gospels and the letters. I mean the whole story of God. The whole story of God. He reveals himself. And he says to these people, let me just take you through again. Let's go right back to Genesis. Let's go right back to the beginning when death entered the world. And let me show you how I've just kind of changed that. That I've just crushed the serpent, as was, as was prophesied, right at the beginning of the Bible. Yeah, let me just show you that. And friends, I think one of the calls of this piece of scripture is to know Jesus in his fullness, 
the full revelation of Christ, not just in Luke's gospel. I kind of feel like Luke saying at the end of this bit, and remember that Luke wrote Acts as well, so this is followed by something else. But the end of this gospel account, he's kind of provoking his readers to say, don't rely on this story to know who Jesus is. And I think he says that to us as a church, doesn't he? Don't rely on the Gospels and the letters only to know who Jesus is. We have to know the fullness of Christ to fully understand who he is and what he's done. Yeah? We need to know that. And I love the fact that Jesus takes the time to teach them and reveal himself to them through the study of the Scriptures. And I do think, it is is my view that it's absolutely our responsibility as Christians, as the church, um, those of us who work full-time in the church, to make sure that Christians know their Old Testament. You know, I could know it better, we could all know it better, but we have to understand that this isn't just a story that begins in the book of Matthew. This is a full story of God. And if we're going to know him, we need to know how that thread runs all the way through. And that's something that we do together, I'm sure. Other things that we've noticed, verse 28, have you noticed that lovely bit? I mean, I just think this is also a very funny story. Uh, it, it's quite humorous, I think. Um, it's, it's full of something that we English teachers like to call dramatic irony, um, which is when the, the reader knows something that the characters in the story don't. Um, and it's full of dramatic irony. We know it's Jesus, and they're walking along going, haven't you heard what's happened in Jerusalem recently? No, do tell me. You know, it's, it's quite a funny moment, actually, isn't it? Uh, and, the, the, you know, you can, um, a little bit uh, like Joe sharing about Michelle Obama, you know, um, that, that it, it's so funny in hindsight. Like I was walking with him and, and I didn't realize, you know, silly me, you know, and, and it, it's quite a funny moment. But I, I love the fact in verse 28 that he makes to carry on his journey. Have you noticed that? I love that, that moment. Just, again, just think about the personal care and attention that Jesus, he's kind of acting here. You know, it's quite a funny trying to imagine the scene where, you know, he's walking with them, he's, he's spoken with them, you can see that it's affecting them, and then it's like, um, you know, this is your moment. You've got to invite me in here, okay? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make to go on. And it is an interesting moment in lots of ways, but I guess the really key idea here is that he doesn't force himself into our hearts, does he? That's not the way the risen Christ is going to operate. You know, raised in glory, I'm not now going to dominate humans' hearts in the way that... that Perhaps Satan tempted him to at the beginning of the gospel account where he says, you can have all this power, you can have all this authority. That's not the way Jesus operates. He invites and then he waits. And there's that wonderful scripture, isn't there, in Revelation, Revelation 3.20. Here I am, it says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and do what? Eat with that person and they with me. And do you see that's what happens here? He makes to go on, they invite him in and he sits and he eats with them and he spends time with them. And it's just like that picture in Revelation. This is the way that Jesus operates. And there's that wonderfully famous painting, isn't there, with Jesus standing at the door knocking, but the door handles on the inside. You know the one I mean? Some of you will have seen it, very famous. It's the way that Jesus operates. He's knocking at the door of our hearts And it's for us to invite him in. And if we invite him in, he will break bread with us. He will share with us. He will spend time with us. 
Not only will he walk with us, but he will rest with us as well. And in doing so, he will reveal himself afresh. And every Sunday, isn't this one of the things that we do? That's the whole point of church, isn't it? One of those things. This morning is an invitation just to to break bread with, with Jesus as well as each other, to invite him in this morning. And the fact that you're here suggests to me that you are opening that door or have done so. How wonderful that he's here and that he ministers to us. He's walked with us this week, hasn't he? Yes, you might not have recognized that he was there, but he did. And he's with us now. How wonderful. And then, of course, he opens their eyes. And I I love the bit later when they're talking about it, verse 31 and 32, when they say, wasn't it amazing how it just, when he opened those scriptures, it just burned in our hearts. Ah, It just burned in our hearts. And what I want you to notice about the way that Christ ministers to them, it's beyond just a head knowledge. It's beyond just a knowledge of who he is. It's a deep-seated knowing. It's a different way of knowing, isn't it? You can know something here, but to know it here or to know it here is different, isn't it? You can know something here. I love the scriptures, I love books, I love language, I love characters, that's the way my brain works. And my greatest fear always as a Christian is that I know too much here and not enough here. Because I get excited about ideas. And sometimes, you know, in preparation for this sermon, you know, I wanted to fit all sorts of clever ideas in and I realized that I was doing it from here rather than here. He wants to open his scriptures himself up to us so we can feel it here or here, but not here. Because they got it here, actually. Do you notice that when he says, what's, what's been going on? They give him a pretty good summary of what's been going on, actually. You notice that? You know, there's nothing wrong, really, with their knowledge apart from one fundamental misunderstanding. They say to him, well, you know, he was a great prophet and he did this and he did that. And then he said he was going to, you know, then he was crucified. And, you know, they've got a full understanding, in a sense, about who Jesus is, which is not dissimilar, can I suggest to you, to the acceptable view of Jesus that remains in our culture. If you ask a non-believer what they think about Jesus, they're probably going to have a couple of different thoughts. They might not know anything at all. They might be really anti because of, you know, religion or the church or the things that that they they think the church has done. But a lot of people will give you a kind of neutral, acceptable response, which is clearly he's a very wise teacher, you know, lots of really kind of insightful things that he said. I believe he was a great person. All those things are true, but they're not enough, are they? That's not a full recognition of who Christ really is. It's not. We cannot rationalize this story to somebody who's just a great teacher and a prophet. Because if you do, you miss the whole point. You miss the whole point. And actually, if he's not who he says he is, as has often been said, then you can only conclude that he's a madman. Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the Son of God. You can't get around it, I'm afraid. But they give a kind of culturally acceptable answer. Um, And and what we see with these disciples is they don't see him yet, do they? They don't see him yet. And I wonder how many people um, in our social circles, how many people perhaps in this room have a knowledge of Jesus here and they get, and they're, they're comfortable with the idea that, okay, you know, he's clearly a very inspirational person. And I, but there has to be more. There has to be a belief in the risen Christ, defeated death. And that, I think, is, explains one of the oddities of this passage, which is why are they kept from recognizing him? It's always an interesting question, isn't it? 
It says they were kept from recognizing him. And you just think, why? Why is Jesus making this harder than it needs to be? My view, for what it's worth, is they have to see him differently. If they recognize him, they've got their old friend Jesus back. Do you see? And that will confine their understanding about his identity to this person that I recognize. You following what I'm saying? I said, oh, great, great, it's you again. Ah, you did win after all. And actually, if they recognized his face in that moment, there's a chance that they wouldn't have the opportunity to expand their view of who Jesus is because Jesus wasn't just a person in history. Wasn't just a person in history. More than that, right? More than that. They have to see him differently. And what they can't rely on here is the evidence of their own eyes. They can't just recognize his face and say, oh, brilliant, Jesus, you're back. Okay? And actually, there's a few moments, aren't there? It's, it's a little bit like uh, Mary as well, who doesn't see him at first, and, and he speaks to her, says, Mary, and then she recognizes him. There is this very this lovely image again and again of, it's not enough just to see, because that will confine their understanding of who Jesus is in an earthly way. That's who they want, actually. They want the comeback king to just be him again and wants to then come forward and be a political leader and save, save Israel. But it's more than that. And I just think that's interesting that, that they have to see him differently. That's the invitation here. Okay. What do we learn here about the Christian walk? There's a lot of application in this, and this is often a passage used in reflection uh, for Christians and for people who are close to being Christians, whatever that means. Um, th- there are a few things I want you to notice um, and, and share. Um, it is often the case that Jesus is walking with us and we don't recognize he's there. That's just being human. <laughs> it is often the case. And it's sometimes because we're looking for him in the wrong places. Um, have you ever had that experience where um, you've bought a new car or you're considering buying a new car and all of a sudden you see that model of car everywhere? Do you all understand what I'm talking about? We had it recently when we bought our car and suddenly we noticed that model of car everywhere. Oh, look, there's one there. Oh, there's one there. All of a sudden it's like your car has multiplied and everybody like you had the same thought that suddenly everyone's rushing out to buy your car. Is everyone recognizing this slight human oddity? It's called confirmation bias. It means that we see what we want to see or we expect to see. So if we start noticing something, we we will notice it more. The truth is that model of car was on the road just as much before, but you didn't notice it. There's a brilliant video, um, which we haven't got time for, um, and some of you might have seen it, where there are a team of uh, players wearing a black T-shirt, and there's a team of players wearing a white T-shirt, and they're passing a basketball around. Anyone come across this before? Uh, they, they pass a basketball around, and what you say to the people watching it is you say, count how many times they pass the ball. Halfway through the sequence, somebody comes in wearing a gorilla suit, and beats their chest in the middle of it, and then walks off. And then when you ask the people, hands up if you saw the gorilla, it's incredible how many people don't see the gorilla. It is just weird. Because our human brains are um, brilliant at blocking out what we think is unnecessary information. It helps us to focus. Right now, there are all sorts of things, environmental things in this room that you're not noticing, because your brain is making an executive decision that you don't need to notice it. That's incredible, but it's also a weakness of the human mind. These disciples are looking for a Jesus that isn't the one. 
that they should be looking for. And that's why they don't see him. They expect to see something different. And because they've got that confirmation bias, I'm looking for this, I don't see that. And that's the thing that I need to see. And that's what we get here. They're looking for the wrong Jesus. And even though he walks with them for a whole afternoon, they don't see him. That's how strong it is, their confirmation bias. And he needs to break that down. And sometimes that's just the way it is, isn't it, as a Christian? We're looking for Jesus to act in this particular way or intervene in this particular way or answer this particular prayer or save us from this particular thing. And then we say, why isn't this happening? And the truth is that all this is happening over here that we just don't see because we're not looking for it. And that is often the case in the Christian walk. Or for those of us who perhaps, those of you who, who are still seeking, perhaps you're looking for the wrong Jesus. And that's hard. You know, there are so many cultural expectations about what, who Jesus is and what he might be in our lives that if we look for the wrong thing, we won't see who he truly, truly is. So there's a first thought. Second thought, the Christian walk can often be bewildering, frustrating, confusing. Things have not gone as planned, have they? <laughs> Things have not gone as planned. They, they are devastated by the crucifixion. Absolutely devastated, these two these two friends, and it's understandable that they should be. And it seems like a defeat. They actually say, and now it's been three days and nothing's happened. Gosh, you know, we, we were, had a bit of faith and we were holding on, holding on. Ah, It's like those football fans who leave in the 90th minute not believing that something can still take place. They think it's over. They think it's over. And sometimes the Christian walk can feel that way as well, can't it? Seems like defeat. And so they're walking away. And so this passage teaches us to remain on the right road, to always be ready for Christ to minister in our lives, and not to doubt and fear and walk away when it seems like things have gone quiet. Because if we do, we might miss the thing, the moment. There are times, I think, even as Christians, when we reduce the person of Jesus and fail to see him as he is or believe in what he has done. We are sometimes squeezed by the world, the dominant worldview. And, you know, I think they want him to be something that he doesn't intend to be. They want him to be this political savior that's going to sort everything out. And that's not who he said he was or what he was going to do. But that's what they want. That's what they want. And I think sometimes we can be like that too. But there is hope. If we invite him in, if we ask him to open our eyes to who he is, if we share and commune with him, if we spend time in his presence, we will see him better. If we share our fears and our doubts, if we allow him to walk with us and talk with us and we say, this is what I'm worried about and I'm confused about this, then we will see him better. He will commune with us. He will share himself with us. He will open our eyes through his Holy Spirit and by his scripture and we will see him afresh. And then look, what happens? The good news. Once they're transformed, they see it afresh. Their hearts burn. And you know what they do? They turn around and they go back. If you're a follower of Jesus, where's the most dangerous place to be right now? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem. 
Because if you've just crushed this person, if you're the enemy, the next thing you're going to do is try and round up his followers before this whole church thing gets going. And that's actually what happened. Where are the disciples? They're hiding because they're terrified of what's going to happen next. If they catch us, they're going to crucify us too. I understand why these two people are on the road away. I do. I get it. I get it. You know, let's just regroup. <laughs> let's regroup. That's really not where I want to be right now. Let's regroup. Um, I know that Jesus told me to wait, but I, I, I'm, I've lost my bottle. I've got to get out of here. Okay? And then he opens their eyes, and what do they do? They turn around, and they walk back, and they go to where they are called to be. And it's only a fresh vision of Jesus that can make us walk back towards the fires and the flames and the difficulties that will come. They turn around and they go back. And that's such a wonderful image of repentance for a new Christian, but also for, for those of us who are already Christians, would call ourselves, or have been Christians a, a, a while. You know, if, if there's a, a part of your life or a part of the world where you feel that you're called to go and do something about and be part of, even though you know it's going to be difficult, you will only be empowered to make that decision if you spend time with Jesus and see him fresh. That, friends, should cause you to turn around and head back to where the action is, where you're required. And that's the Christian walk, isn't it? He'll walk with us. He'll share in our difficulties and our troubles. He'll be patient with us. He will invite himself in. And if we let him in and if we see him the way that he needs to be seen, if we open our eyes to who he really is, we will have the confidence and the faith to turn around and go back to where we're required and to do his work. And thank goodness they did. They went back and what did they do the first thing? They told everybody what had happened. They shared the gospel. It's true. It's true. It's true. Let's go. How wonderful. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this remarkable, remarkable story. We thank you, Jesus, that you take the time to come and save us, to redirect us. We thank you, Lord, that you walk with us every day. We thank you that you share in our frustrations and our fears. We thank you that you commune with us that you want to spend time with us. And we ask, Lord, that we would just invite you in now. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. We ask you to open our eyes. We ask your word to burn in our hearts. And we ask you to help us to turn around again and head back to where you want us to be. Amen.